that was Trump. I mean, that was all about Trump. That wasn't about Biden. That was that was we absolutely and utterly want Trump or we absolutely and utterly need to get rid of Trump. That's Dr. Lawrence Pintak, Dean of the Graduate School of Media and Communication at the Aga Khan University in East Africa. I spoke with Dean Pintak, who was in Nairobi, Kenya, last week. I wanted to find out how other countries are viewing the election of President-elect Joe Biden and the ensuing mess and challenges that are occurring in the aftermath. Jasmine Kendrick, co-host of The Way with Jazz and Tay, a radio show and podcast which airs on KKNW at 7 a.m. on Thursdays, is going to interview me today about self-employment and if this is something that you want to consider in the future. Unfortunately, as we all know, we're back into lockdown, so you may want to take a look at this during this time and uh, maybe consider opening up your own business when things get back to normal, hopefully sooner than later. My name is Paul Casey, your host, and along with producer Benny Mathers, we are bringing you Voices of Experience today. Back with Lawrence Pintak in just a moment. Lawrence Pintak is an award-winning journalist and scholar who has reported from four continents, including 18 African countries and 15 Arab states. He is dean of the Graduate School of Media and Communication at the Aga Khan University in East Africa and was previously the founding dean of the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication at Washington State University. And that's where I met him. I thought it would be a really good opportunity to talk to someone who obviously is very knowledgeable about Europe and the Middle East. How are they viewing the presidential election from the Middle East, from Africa, and Europe? I think it was all summed up in the headline in the Standard in Nairobi, which was a, a tabloid paper. So the whole front page was a picture of troops on the ground in a, in a city, the faces of Trump and Biden, and the headline, The Shame of America. And this is how much of the world has watched what happened. Uh, and that was before the announcement of Biden's victory. That was as the votes were being counted and the president was denouncing the process. Now, they're just all shaking their heads. Do people see any uh, light with Biden coming in? There's absolutely all sorts of hope. Um, much of the world was completely alienated from America over the last four years. If you weren't an authoritarian dictator or the prime minister of Israel or the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, um, you saw what was going on in, in the U.S. as undermining democracy, undermining the world order, undermining stability. And so now they see the prospect that Biden, I mean, they believe Biden has won in general terms and they don't understand, A, our system, the whole electoral college thing but B, how Trump could still be fighting these, these results. But at the end of the day, the overarching message, you know, whether you turn on the BBC or France International or uh, read the Jakarta Post, the overarching message or sentiment is that this is a done deal. Well, that kind of reflects, I think, exactly what we're thinking in this country. Ultimately, Biden will prevail. So it seems we're kind of in the same place there. 
And the world looks at Trump's policies. Again, if, if you weren't an authoritarian dictator, um, if you believed in trying to save the environment, if you believed in trying to achieve peace, if you believed in a stable economic world, uh, if you believed in keeping the Russians and the Chinese in check, then you were fairly depressed because the U.S. does set the world agenda. Now they see that Trump is on his way out. So they see announcements from Biden that on day one, he rejoins the Paris Climate Accord, et cetera, et cetera. And so you have a new reason to hope. But it's not going to be easy to rebuild all of this. It sounds like people like in this country, the 75 million who voted for Biden are hopeful that that is going to happen. And it kind of sounds like the rest of the world is rooting for us. And maybe there's two countries that hope that doesn't happen, Russia and China. Do you get a sense that European countries and Africa are thinking that, hey, we want the U.S. to move back into that position of leadership? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a great deal of of reassurance that the U.S. will slowly uh, retake its position in the world. But, you know, the reality is you mentioned Russia and China and the all of the checks and balances on them, and particularly the Russians in a, in a geopolitical sense in the Middle East, for example, uh, all those those checks and balances were eliminated. So the Russians never had a foothold in the Middle East in, in recent history. And now, you know, they have a significant foothold in the Middle East. Um, you know, the Chinese are clearly the Chinese were pushing the envelope up in so many ways, but they have pretty much, despite the rhetoric at times from the Trump administration, they pretty much had their way. And so for for the Biden administration, yes, they can flip policies. Uh, they can do things like rejoining the Paris Climate Accords. That can happen in a day. Uh, you could even theoretically rejoin the Iran nuclear deal, though there will be some negotiation around that. It won't be a 24-hour thing. But you're not going to get the Russians out of Syria anytime soon. Uh, You're not going to stop the expansion of Chinese influence through their Belt and Road Initiative across South Asia, across the Middle East, across Africa. All of these things are structural, fundamental changes to the world landscape that cannot be undone in a couple of executive orders. Speaking of the Middle East, Trump certainly swung everything Israel's way. Have we lost so much credibility with the Palestinians that there's no going back? Um, Probably. Um, You know, it's not like Biden is this champion of Palestinian rights. Uh, Biden calls himself a Zionist. Uh, Biden has long said he has sympathies and empathies for Israel. Now, there is a big difference between supporting the right of the state of Israel to exist and supporting uh, certain Israeli policies and doing what the Trump administration did, and that was just unleashing Israel on the West Bank, unleashing the settlers, etc. I think there will be a rationalization of America's policy policy toward Israel. I mean, remember, there's a huge contingent of American Jews who oppose the policies of this Israeli government. They obviously want 
the existence of the state of Israel and support, you know, support many of its policies. But this overt expansion in the West Bank, the slaughter of people in the Gaza Strip, these are things that I think, yes, Biden will start to reset that relationship. Um, I think he will also reset the relationship with Saudi Arabia. Um, You know, this is the other great winner under the Trump administration. You know, remember, the crown prince murdered, chopped up into little pieces, a journalist, a colleague and and friend of mine, um, and has never paid for that, and has, has slaughtered countless thousands, tens of thousands of people in Yemen, has created one of the world's greatest humanitarian disasters and famines. And the U.S. under Trump has just continued to provide weapons and support and logistical support and intelligence to him. I think that will change. Again, all of this takes time. Right. Took a long time to get where we're at, and it's not going to be uh, fixed overnight. It sounds to me is that we're going back to um, Obama administration here again. It kind of when he left office, we're going going to do a reboot. I, I mean, yes, on a certain level. Um, but again, I mean, first of all, just talk about the Middle East for a second. Um, by the end of the Obama administration, he didn't have much credibility in the Middle East either. He started off great. He came to Istanbul and then came to Cairo, said all the right things about a new relationship with the Muslim world. And then if you're old enough to remember the old commercial, where's the beef? Uh, That's what Arabs and Muslims ended up saying. You said all the right words, but the policies that followed it never really matched. And uh, anything else then on how the world is viewing the U.S. in this election? There are. Democrats, and I don't mean in the political party sense, but people who believe in democracy, who struggle for democracy on a daily basis, who have always looked up to America, uh, who have always been inspired by America. And so they are perplexed and disheartened. Um, in, in my field, media, um, you know, I work on on helping media in the developing world to grow and build and become more free, et cetera. Well, we've had four years of the president of the United States saying the media is the enemy. So you can only imagine how that has fed the argument of the autocrats that these journalists are you know, struggling to get out from under. So it has made the, the situation for journalism around the world very grim. And that then has implications for people who are struggling for democratic reforms, struggling for rights, etc., etc. So there is a huge domino effect. And again, these things aren't going to be changed overnight. For example, just staying with this media issue for a minute, remember that you have American diplomats around the world who preach to whether it's in India or here in Kenya or in Bolivia, preach to governments and politicians and the media about the need for a free press. Well, imagine what these diplomats, what these State Department employees have been going through for the last four years as they try to foster free and independent media, both through you know pressure, government pressure, policies, and funding when the autocrats turn and say, but your president, 
says the media is the enemy. I would have to say they have to deal with a little bit of hypocrisy here coming from us now with on that score. And you mentioned early that uh, in your statements here that the world or in your experience, they're perplexed. And all I can say is to anybody else outside the United States, so are we. <laughs> I mean, the other thing that's happened, if you talk about the UK, the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, their prime minister, was has long been compared to Trump. Um, they both have weird haircuts. Uh, they're both, you know, they both pride themselves on on saying politically inappropriate things, etc. Both have et got COVID. Both have got COVID exactly. And so, you know, he was. You know, friends of mine say, you know, we sat around in the, in the pub five, eight years ago saying, ha, 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 wouldn't it be funny if Trump got elected and Boris Johnson got elected? And of course, here we are. But now Johnson looks pretty good compared to Trump. There were 60 million votes for him last time. And then I said, who's going to say, well, my vote for Hillary was wrong. I'm going to cross over to Trump now. I said, nobody. So he got 60 million. He's going to flatline. He's going to stay there. That was my projection. Wrong. He got 11 million more votes than he did in the last election. I just really have a hard time with that one. How can that have been? How can these people have thought that he was a good leader? Um, and so that, again, has has the world perplexed. And, you know, like you, I'm fairly perplexed myself. I think that the vote turn the voter turnout, and I'm talking less about how many votes he got, but that total turnout, that was Trump. I mean, that was all about Trump. That wasn't about Biden. That was, that was, we absolutely and utterly want Trump, or we absolutely and utterly need to get rid of Trump. And so that brought unprecedented numbers to the polls. And that says something very, very loud and troubling about the polarization of America, that it's not just that core group that voted for him last time, but all these other people were motivated to get out and vote for him now. I was surprised, not uh, pleasantly surprised, that how many Latinos and how many Cubans and how many Hispanics voted for him and how many, well, he well, didn't get a lot of blacks, but he, he did get, he got some uptick there, but not a lot. Anyhow, but it just shows that no, no group is a monolith. You know, we may look at Latinos as, as, you know, they all have the same opinions, but obviously, you know, what, what he got was the ant- those who fled Castro in South South Florida, who were always very conservative. And I, the irony, of course, is that, you know, he, he's bellying up to autocrats, dictators. And they, on one level, don't like dictators, but they most, most emphatically, he resonated with them when he talked about Biden being a socialist, as ridiculous as that is. All right. The other thing I should add, you know, when I talk about how the world views this, um, yes, there is hugely this issue of 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 uh, uh, perplexity and disappointment with this drawn out process and a president, a sitting president saying all these things about democracy. But the other piece is a reassurance that democracy works, that despite everything and despite all the, you know, the external messing with the election, with social media, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Despite all of that, it worked. And, you know, I'm working, I'm working on the, the assumption that we're going to get through the electoral college process and that we're not going to have some insane scenario, as Trump has talked about, of trying to get Republican state legislatures, 
legislatures to overturn the electoral vote and and appoint their own electors. That remains a possibility. But let's assume that this all goes forward. That is reassuring to the world that ultimately the American democratic system did work. That's Dr. Lawrence Pintech, an author of five books, including America and Islam, Soundbites, Suicide Bombs, and The Road to Donald Trump. And that book is available on Amazon. And one more note about that book. It was a finalist for the 2020 Religion News Association Annual Book Award. As a former CBS News Middle East correspondent, Dr. Pintech has been called the foremost chronicler of the interaction between Arab and Western media. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. To kick things off here, um, I would love to know what you are trying to accomplish with Voices of Experience and what was the inspiration behind that? I always felt that the best lessons I got from people who have experience, for example, I find my interviews much better when I talk to former governors or former mayors Mm. or former business people because they're not guarded, they don't have anything to lose, and they're much more reflective, and I think people get much better, solid information from those interviews. I want to know more about this book that you wrote about starting a small business. Why was that something that you wanted to do? I was in business for about 10 to 15 years. And what I was starting to hear was kind of foreign to me. I was hearing, again, a lot of theory, a lot of what to do. And Mm. from people who did not run their business. Mm. After about 10 or 15 years, you get kind of an idea of what you did right and what you did wrong. And certainly I did a lot of things wrong in the beginning. (laughs) But I was still around. So I wanted to relate my experiences. So I decided to write a book called Is Self-Employment for You? I wanted Mm. to just present that question to somebody. I found that people over the years who have read the book have said to me that, yeah, I don't want to do a business, but that was because of your book. And a lot of times Mm. it's not competency, it's timing. And that's why I have put together a quiz. There's like 20 questions on that quiz, and it's in the book. And the higher you score on this quiz, the higher your prospects for success. Awesome. Yeah. So if you want to buy the book, that's great. It's on Amazon. Mm -hmm. It's self-employment for you, Paul E. Casey. You can also go take the quiz on my website if I want to just do that, and it's VoicesOfExperience.com. It's a five-minute quiz. Let me just give you one of the questions on the uh, quiz because I think it will give you a sense of what the questions are. One of the questions is, do you execute what you set out to do? There's a range of one to ten. One is, I have great ideas, but it's always sitting on my desk and I never get to it, or a ten being I, when I have something, I get it done all the time. I don't believe there's many ones in the world or there's certainly not tens or somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. And so I'm submitting is that if you have an idea, like you wanted to start a radio show with Shantae 
and um, mm-hmm. you did it. It's on and it's airing. So you've executed what you set out to do. Yeah, other things absolutely. That you do that. Another one would be, are you good at finances? I had an interview once with somebody and it was about starting a learning center for children. And I said, great, that sounds really good. She said all the right things. And then at the end, she said, well, you know, I'm in debt and I, and I got credit card debts and I have like that. And I go, end of discussion. I said, you know, basically, <laughs> you have to have some competency in finances, like a savings account and, um, you know, to show that you can manage finances. Otherwise, self-employment is not for you and grade yourself right. really low on that category. Doesn't mean, though, in every question on this, if you uh, you can prove in things, you can come back if you score low. And let's say the execution or the finances, get better at it. You can do that. I mean, I wasn't good in finances for a long time. It didn't mean much to me. And then I realized at some point you had to really get your act together to do this. And if I'm going to preach to somebody about running a business, I better be, you know, competent in finances. I'm not a whiz at it. So in this book is self-employment for you. You write about the eight myths of going into business um, for yourself. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I've got a few that I saw on the list that I've got a couple questions about. Great. Do uh, you want me to just run through them quickly and then you can go to the ones that you want more clarification on that way? Or... Yes, please. All right. Um, well, myth number one is entrepreneurs are huge risk takers. I don't believe that. I think that is a myth that actually the ones who make it ultimately are long-term thinkers. They keep their costs down. They're competent with finances and they're very frugal with money. Number two, uh, the first thing you do is write a business plan. All I submit is that's the last thing you do. A business plan won't <laughs> save a bad concept. Three, the businesses fail because they run out of money or are they're undercapitalized or most businesses do that. I believe that many businesses fail because they have too much money in the beginning. Number four, the customer is always right. A bad customer, depending on your business, can cost you your business. It almost happened to me twice. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Number five, see, watch your competitors like a hawk. I believe competitors are your best friends. And uh, number six, get all agreements in writing. I'm not saying that don't sign a contract. Don't do that. But don't think that it will save you from a bad, you know, like a bad customer or things like that. Yeah. That's why there's so many lawyers in the world, because you sign a document <laughs> And then you, it's all up to interpretation. Yeah. And uh, most of the time, then you have the problems with a client is that they have run out of money and they're not going to pay you. And good luck trying to collect on those people. Hiring a lawyer, right. they're going to be ten or fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a start. So it better be something worthwhile going after. And most of your interactions aren't that high. My feeling is that eighty percent of the people, even closer to ninety, that you deal with every day are really honorable people. They'll pay their bills. Their checks won't bounce. It's only 5% of right. the people I find that are the the ones who leave you high and dry. And again, there are not a lot of those people, so stick with the ones that are going to pay the bills. Number seven, always think positive. I say always think worst case scenario. There's this positive culture out there that I think gets people in trouble. And number eight, yeah. follow your passion and the money will follow. It's not true. Passion has nothing to do with you succeeding in business. That's funny. I want to start actually with follow your passion because that one stuck out to me initially as kind of peculiar. It does make sense because of course you could have a passion for something that really won't 
run you a lot of money in the long run, no matter how great of a business. I always think to myself, well, I would love to follow my passion. What do you mean? I want to, <laughs> of course, I want to do the work that I love <laughs> for a living. <laughs> I understand where you're coming from as far as that goes. You got to distinguish between a hobby and a business. And we've heard that our whole life. It's about our passion, but I just think it's a, a, a trap. And I think people, when they go into it with that in mind, get themselves into trouble. And um, yeah. so, but I do believe that you really should look at filling a niche and solving mm -hmm. a problem. The other one that you got my interest in was the entrepreneurs are risk takers. I always assume that, you know, because they are taking chances or, you know, they might be the first ones getting their foot in the door, uh, say on like a new product or something like that. It's, you know, they're, they're always gambling. So I usually correlate that with taking risk. You need to write down about four or five things, why you want to go into business. What's important to you and, and what type of lifestyle do you want to live? That's extremely important. And when you go through that process, that will more dictate the business you want to go into. What is important to you in your lifestyle? And you said yourself that you went into business. Did you know that that was something you always wanted to do? Or was it something that maybe you, you saw someone else and it inspired you? Or how did you get there? That is a great question. Everybody's different. I've talked to people that mm -hmm. when they knew they were five years old, they wanted to be self-employed. Not me. Mm -hmm. It was the last thing I wanted to do. I started out, I worked for the state of Washington for a couple of years. I worked for a public relations firm. Then I worked for Metro Transit, and then I started a nonprofit, Alzheimer's Association, or I was the first executive director. I never thought about running my own business till my early 30s. Okay. Why I think that's such a great question, Jasmine, is because a lot of people think you have to have this really burning desire to be an entrepreneur. Actually, probably your prospects for success will be higher if you've done a lot of different things, as you were talking about, you know, I've done this and that and all these different things that kind of got you to that point. I kind of see myself there because I'm, I feel like I'm reaching that point in my own life and where it's like, you know, I have done all these different things in these different fields and I've had different experience. And is that really what I want? Do I, am I excited for this, you know, on a daily basis? <laughs> so that's actually a, a great thing that I feel like hearing. It, it, it makes me feel good hearing, knowing that you, someone who's been there and done that and you have your experience, I'm a bit younger and it's a similar experience. So I'm, I know that from here, I'm probably, I'm probably going to get my bootstraps on and go. <laughs> Keep your overhead low. The other thing is to listen to people who run their business. And then uh, the other thing would be to drill down to when you get to the point of the type of business, go talk to the people who are about 10 years ahead of you. What I find, and I said one of the myths that competitors are your best friends, people are extremely generous. They're not going to say, oh, my God, they may put me out of business if they succeed. Most people I find mm -hmm. who have run their business are now confident enough to know they're going to make it. So they're, you're not going to be a threat to them. And they'll give you some yeah. good pointers. That was Jasmine Kendricks interviewing me about self-employment and whether this is something that you may want to consider as a future option. I would like to thank Dr. Lawrence Pintak for sharing with us how other people in other countries are viewing the election that has just taken place in the United States. Before we go, I would like to wish Robert Brown 
a happy 94th birthday. He has become such a dear friend. Some of you may remember a show from the late 1960s called Here Come the Brides, and Robert Brown was the star. And basically, the show was focused on the early days of Seattle.